0: Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. And if you like this episode, please do subscribe. I'm so excited about my guest today, Dr. Mario E. Martinez. Dr. Martinez has developed a model to effectively change our beliefs that limit our health, longevity, and success. Dr. Martinez is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect the interaction of productivity, health, and longevity. He is the founder of biocognitive science and the Empowerment Code. Dr. Martinez holds a master's degree in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University and a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Madrid. He also has a postdoctoral training in psychopharmacology i hope i pronounced that correctly from Fairley dixon university he lectures worldwide on his theory of biocognition and teaches empowerment code principles to top us corporate executives and to global organizations in europe south america africa and asia pacific this is his story and this is his passion dr martinez i'm so honored to have you on the show welcome to passion harvest
1: Thank you. I was looking forward to it. It's very good to meet you and to to share my work with uh, with your audience.
0: Well, I'm so excited that you're here today. So let's dive right in if you're ready. Um, What is biocognition?
1: It's a word that I had to invent uh, because uh, science looks at mind and body and communication of mind and body. and, And there's very little doubt that the mind and the body communicate with each other. But what I'm bringing in is the third component, which is culture the mind and the body do not communicate in a vacuum. They communicate in a culture which has a history of collective beliefs. And those collective beliefs affect our health, our longevity and the things that I'll be talking about. So really I'm bringing in mind-body culture as, as a way of looking at uh, human beings interacting with each other and, w- and with themselves.
0: So is this, is this from our family history, environmental impacts so of the culture, basically how our life and our family and our environment
1: Uh, Yes, uh, the culture has tremendous power. I I, I look at it as an analogy would be looking at it. You're you're in a fishbowl, but you don't know that you're in the fishbowl. You think that that's it. And what happens is that we learn our ethics, our aesthetics, our sense of well-being from our culture. And our culture has collective beliefs of what is correct, what is not. And we learn all of that. And then what we become is a cultural self. And in my work, what I try to do is get people to go from the cultural truth to a personal truth to find out what you are rather than what they tell you you are. And that will affect everything. It'll affect uh, your relationships, your your prosperity, because what you learn is not what you're told by your parents or other people, but it's what you observe. So if you have a father who tries and tries and never makes it and never succeeds, then the bio information that you're getting is that no matter what I do, I'm not going to succeed. Even though intellectually, your father may say, don't be like me, but, but we learn by observation early in life. Uh, so it's like riding a bike that's built in. And then there's some things that, that we do that to break that so people can liberate themselves from from the fishbowl.
0: That's a great way to explain it. I personally, for me, uh, when I went back to study, thought that my thoughts were my own, but in fact, they weren't. They were part of my environment and my culture and my family. And I thought these aren't really my thoughts.
1: Yes. Very much. And, it. and it's
0: very empowering, recognizing that.
1: Yes. And, and especially having tools to do it, because there's a lot, as you know, from the work that you do, a lot of good, scientific, uh, knowledgeable people out there. But there are also a lot of charlatans that don't know what they're doing, where if they know what they're doing, they abuse people with information. And one of the things that I caution people is that there are no quick fixes. You can't change a history in, in five minutes, but you also don't have to go into psychoanalysis for years. You just have to learn some methods and be aware of who's co-authoring your reality with you, because some people co-author your reality without even knowing it, uh, including uh, illness. People co-author illnesses with each other without knowing it.
0: And and the, this whole cultural impact, or I guess all the elements, is this what you refer to as the bioinformational
1: field? Yes. Bioinformation is another concept that I, I have to pretty much invent. It's, it's a... Uh, cognition is a new paradigm, so you have to have a new language to be able to conceive the paradigm. And rather than talking about energy, like a lot of people talk about energy and uh, and chi um, and and quantum, all of those kind of things are interesting, but they're poetics. So they don't really give you but very much. They're a, a
0: bit woo woo.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, my is is simply going from the cell to the to the belief system is what the biology does with information. So what your biology is gonna do with information, it'll do it at the cellular level, it'll do it at the, at the belief system level, which I'll go into as we move along, but it's really an interaction of information and biology. And that's how that's how we exist as bioinformational beings, because we're not just biology, we're not just information, we're, we are we are a conglomerate. The way to look at it is that think of a culture Look, look at the world as potential to be anything you want. Uh, it could be a tree. It could be whatever you want. But what the culture does is it weaves a fabric around the world. And what you see is the fabric woven by the culture, not the world. And and in one place, you see one type of world. Another, you see another one. But it affects your mind body, especially psychoneuroimmunology, which is a big word, P&I, for how thoughts and emotions affect the immune, nervous, and endocrine regulation. So information is knowledge and knowledge becomes biology.
0: So in essence, our thoughts and our emotions create our reality, create our sickness, our health.
1: Yes, yes, because what happened is if you look at it developmentally, we were animal, We were basically cavemen and, and women and and in the forest, not everybody was in a cave, but we didn't have a language. And we didn't have a consciousness, so I use a lot of anthropology. We developed a consciousness when two things happened. First, when we started creating trinkets that didn't have any any function as as a as a tool, it's just pretty. That creates tremendous. That requires tremendous amount of uh, cognition to be able to do that. And second, we started burying our dead. When you start burying your dead, you, you have a consciousness that says there must be something beyond. And, and it's not just burying them, as some people say, because you wanted to be hygienic. Mm-hmm. They were buried with things that were important to the people. So they we're assuming that there's something beyond those kind of things. And then language created something that goes beyond uh, just uh, 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 existing and, and, and survival into finding meaning. So then the brain had to become a cultural brain. Before, you could smell the, the pheromones of a, of a lion. 300 feet away but now you say there's a lion 300 feet away the language but then the brain had to understand that language to have the same stress reaction as smelling the, the language so then language becomes biosymbolic language so this is when somebody says to you you're so stupid and they shame you you have molecules of inflammation as if there's some kind of pathogen out there so the immune system is, is cultural and it responds to biosymbols
0: and just your example about you're so stupid, we hold on to this sensitivity of hurt and pains and sorrows, and they affect our life.
1: Yes, because we're the only, the only animal that, that ruminates. Uh, a, a zebra, after the zebra runs away from, from the lion and has all the, uh, the um, uh, cortisol and norepinephrine and that, the lion's gone. They go back to eating. We ruminate. We keep the lion in our heads. Somebody has a, a driving, for example, and um, and somebody gets in front of you and you have a you have a stress reaction and you say, oh, that idiot. And, and you start getting upset. So you keep thinking about it and you can't wait to get to the office to talk about what happened. to you, <laughs> And then they. I think many can
0: relate to that.
1: Yeah. They out victimize you because you say you wouldn't believe what this guy did to me. I almost had an accident. And they'll say, well, I had two accidents. So I have to out victimize you. And then all of that is creating stress responses because the brain doesn't know that it's over. Cognition knows that it's over, but if you keep repeating it, since you're a bioinformational field of mind and body and thoughts, you're keeping up that that level of of, uh, stress hormones throughout the day. And what does it do? It affects immune function, it affects blood pressure, heart, and all kinds of things.
0: I'm just gonna relay it in simple terms for what I'm interpreting, but it's almost like that fight or flight response that that we hear about, which would have been wonderful if there was a, a lion or a tiger chasing us, but we don't necessarily need it in our modern day.
1: Yes. And, but we use it as it for because we, we've gone from the the need for survival to the need for meaning. It's very important. I'll say something that, that's a little um, politically incorrect, but I had a, an anthropology professor who was very, very proper. His, his name was Dr. England, and he wore a three-piece uh, three suit, and he said... In the days of the caves, there weren't too many options. You see something and you either eat it or you fornicate it. Now it's different. Now it's a lot more options Mm -hmm. that we have. So he was basically saying we were very primitive. We had no option to find meaning in what we we do in our lives. Now, meaning is more important than the the survival. Survival, we can survive. But meaning, so since we advanced from uh, survival to meaning, your biology also survived and moved on to meaning. So the biology requires meaning now. In fact, one of the most important things about health is for you to have meaning in your life. If you want to get somebody sick in a a corporation, you give them a job without meaning and you give them responsibility without authority. Within a few months they're sick because we're beings that require uh, a sense of significance in what we do, but also to be able to overcome challenges with the right resources. So empowerment is very important in the work that I do, as you mentioned with uh, Fortune 500 companies. And, uh, and the idea of empowerment is that you have a challenge and empowerment simply means it's a very misused word. It simply means access to resources to overcome a challenge. That's it. The immune system does that. People do that. If you don't have the access or you don't use the access, you go into helplessness and the immune system goes into helplessness. also. That's how people get sick when they give them bad news and and they don't give them any any alternatives.
0: Very interesting, and I'm I'm digressing from all the amazing questions I had to ask you. But <laughs> when we talk about that stress response, you know, now we search for meaning, but we did come from the, from the need for survival. Many people are I would I don't like to use the word addicted, but addicted to that stress response. It's almost like they need it to survive.
1: Uh, yes, they, uh, they, because, because they don't go inward and look for internal meaning, then they have to have something that excites them. And, and, and I think the media is very much to blame to a certain degree because the media will look for hype, will look for things that are just so weird. They won't put out news that says uh, uh, this woman raised her two kids by herself and, and paid for, the, uh, for their college and they're all b- doing very well. That's bland. But if you say this this woman did something really bizarre and killed the kids, okay, then that's news. So what you do is you create a desensitization to negativity. There was, there's some psychological tests that you can give. Uh, they started around in the 40s and they'll give you some really um, aggressive or, or, or very bizarre kinds of pictures and they'll measure your stress response. Well, they've had to upgrade it many, many times because the stress response has changed. It's no big deal if you see a person with a car accident, but now you've got to see more. So you're desensitized to stress, but you don't realize that the body is actually responding to it, but you're not picking up on it because you're so desensitized to it that you think that the world is an alarm system and, and you just get up in the mornings. I wonder what battle I'm going to fight today. That, that is a mindset that affects your health and your wealth.
0: And why do you, well, I guess, I guess the, the, it sells in the media, the very violent um, issues. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people crave that or want that?
1: Uh, they're, they're being taught to find interest in things that, that touch them emotionally. But instead of looking for because look at the difference. You, you watch in the media, somebody getting raped, mm. and you will have a tremendous stress response your pupils will dilate, you'll have cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up and you suppress immune function. But let's say that you see someone like Mother Teresa or someone doing something laudable, you have admiration, especially if it's without envy, the the thing is completely different. You have oxytocin, serotonin, uh, endorphins, all of the neurotransmitter that enhance immune function and give you a sense of wellness and well-being. So look at the difference in Mm -hmm. how that works. Uh, So the media is really responsible for it and also people, because you you can certainly turn it off, but we get uh, dependent uh, on media, we get dependent on phones. Uh, If you're not on social media, you think you're missing something. All of that is a cultural collaboration to make money, not a conspiracy, it's just a way of making money.
0: And I think you've been discussing all of it here, but. Do you mind just talking about your mind-body code that you've created? Yes.
1: Um, That was my first book, was a mind-body code. Uh, And that is uh, looking at what the mind and the body do. They have a code of, of interacting with each other. So I'll give you a very simple example.
0: Wonderful. When you're
1: sitting like you are now and I'm sitting, you could say, I am safe, I am safe. And the body intellectually would respond to that. But the mind-body code for safety that comes from hundreds of thousands of years, epigenetically transferred from generation to generation, is simply to have your back against something solid or knowing that your back is solid a wall. Because you learn from the caves and whatever, that if your back was up to the opening, you could be some animal's lunch or you could be killed by your enemy. So we learned that epigenetically transferred. So if you want to be safe, the mind-body code is make sure that you sit with something touching your back that's solid or you know that your back is touching uh, or is behind, like you, for example, you have a solid wall. Mm-hmm. And, and evidence for that, um, when there were some studies that looked at people who had their desks uh, facing the, the uh, wall or, and people that were facing the, the door, the people that were facing the door would get up more to go to the bathroom, would get up and, 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 and feel uncomfortable without knowing it. The people that had their back to something solid were more able to work uh, in, a, in a more efficient and, and calm way, just from that. So that's one of the examples. So w- I'm probably not
0: using the right terminology, but from our ancestors, from genetics, we inherit all these traits in the present person that we are.
1: Yes, because um, there's a, there's an area in biology that's fairly new, well, 40 years, maybe 50 years, uh, it's called epigenetics, which means beyond the genetics. And, and the thinking was very Darwinian that we only transfer information from the DNA, mm. from, from the nucleus. And it takes millions of years for that information to change. And, and, and the examples are that we don't look like uh, the cro Magnums we don't look like Neanderthals. But it wasn't known that we also transfer information, non-DNA, not from the nucleus, uh, that actually has to do with survival and meaning. So, for example, people that were in Auschwitz and the concentration camps in in Nazi Germany uh, and and Poland, uh, obviously those people had a very high level of cortisol because they were in a place that they were going to be killed. Well, they passed that level of cortisol for two or three generations epigenetically uh, to their kids and to their, their grandchildren. It takes about two or three generations to clean that up. You can clean it up if you learn how to do it, but if you don't, it's there, and you don't know why you have that hyper uh, alarm about the world, what has been transferred epigenetically. But you also can transfer epigenetically good things, like centenarians with people who are over 100 years old that I studied all over the world, and I found that uh, the genetics is only 20%. The rest is the culture beliefs that they have and how they live. That was
0: that was an amazing study. What was that like study, studying studying um, people that were over a hundred? What was the commonality which you talked about? It wasn't only genetics.
1: Yes. Um, well, as a as a neuropsychologist, I thought it was going to be genetics, and there's some uh, also some genes that are called the methuselah gene and all that. It's not a gene thing. Uh, one gene does not affect many things. So I was looking for genetics. Mm-hmm and I looked for only centenarians who were healthy. I wasn't interested in looking at centenarians who were just vegetating because of, that's living without quality. Yeah. So I went all over the world looking at these centenarians and I found some very specific things that other people have found too and found that genetics is only 20%. How they live is really what triggers what I call the causes of health. And that's what, in my second book, The Mind-Body Self, I talk about that, that it's, that it's mind-body culture and that we learn longevity culturally and we inherit the causes of health. So for example, one of the causes of health the centenarians have is that they have a good sense of humor. They've been in bad places. One uh, was in a concentration camp mm-hmm. and they're not Pollyanna. They don't tell you, oh, it's so wonderful. They know how to get angry because um, what, what my mentor, George Solomon called righteous anger, means that you have to get angry at the right context but not be angry all the time. So I asked him, how was it in the concentration camp? Uh, and he said, well, it was really very rough. Those people were terrible. He said, but what I remember is that one of the guards was 19 like me, and he would slip some food into me, uh, and we became friends. And that's what I remember from, from what was going on from there. So you see, he doesn't take that burden with him. He takes the best of humanity, although he can be angry about it. So it's not Pollyanna, but it's not uh, super negativity, not, not gloom and doom. And that's an example that. Uh, the other example, uh, and these are things that can be learned, by the way, that's what mm-hmm. I teach in my work websites and, yep. and, and workshops and so forth, is that they have uh, what's called um, um, healthy narcissism. And our cultures teach us to be pseudo-humble. If, you, uh, if I say, I like your hair, someone would say, oh, I haven't washed it in three days. <laughs> um, I like your, your dress, oh yeah, it's very old. See, it's it's excusing your greatness. Mm -hmm. Centenarians are not that way. I spoke to a centenarian. She was a beautiful woman. She was 102. And I said, you're a beautiful woman. She said, yes, I am. I've always been beautiful ever since I was a little girl. Oh, I love that. See how refreshing that is. But they have inclusive, what what I call inclusive um, narcissism, which means that they're not sociopaths. A sociopath would try to abuse your attraction to them. They include you. So I'll give you another example. I, I went to Cuba mm-hmm. to study centenarians. There are quite a few centenarians. Has nothing to do with revolution. It's way before the revolution. Right. Um, so they gave him a party. They treat him like uh, uh, like superstars. Okay. So he comes up to me. And there was quite a few. There were quite a few women around, and he looks at me and he said, "Have you noticed how the women are looking at me?" Look at me. <laughs> so then he says, "But you notice how beautiful they are." See, inclusive narcissism. A sociopath would say, look how beautiful they are. Now I'm going to take advantage of that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They include you in in their admiration. And that is very healthy. So you want to learn to admire without envy, but also to be able to admire yourself. And when someone says, I love your hair. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you noticed. That's it. Uh, And people will say, oh, but you're being conceited. No, do you want me not to accept a gift you're giving me? And it's a gift, it's a gratitude, and gratitude has immunology. Generosity has immunology. So when someone says, you're so bright. Thank you, I'm glad you noticed. Somebody will say, what, what do you mean? Well, you think I'm bright. I wanna be grateful and tell you, yes, I agree. But that has to be taught. That's a cultural change that we do to teach that because cultures will teach you to stay humble
0: so Mm. you don't leave the tribe. And it's almost like you're giving permission that that's okay.
1: Yeah, it's okay. If the, is it okay? And what happens is you, you leave the culture and uh, you come back as a hero. They love you. But after a while, they start putting you down and you have to come back as a failure. Because otherwise, they'll say, you left the tribe and now you don't need us anymore. It, it's all built in but from within the pale. The pale is an old English word. Uh, medieval word that means enclosure p-a-l-e and when you're in the enclosure you're protected from animals from enemies and everything but now we still have the enclosure you still leave i work with people who are very very famous and they come from humble backgrounds and then when they go back to the tribe at first they like them and then afterwards oh so you don't have any time for me and what they do is they start sabotaging their their wealth and their well-being so they can go back as alcoholics, so they can go back depressed, not all of them, but a, quite a bit of, of them that I've seen do that because that's the only way that they can be accepted.
0: And you work through them th- with them through through this and tell them that it's okay. Basically, you're giving them permission that they can shine.
1: Yes, and but we, we try to do it because one of the things that we do in biocognition is it's not intellectual. You can't do it intellectual. If it were intellectual, And you're depressed, I would say, come on, don't be depressed. Look, what a pretty day. And you say, oh, you're right. Thank you. Or don't do cocaine because it's going to kill you. Oh, thank you, doctor. I won't do it anymore. It's intellectual. So what Mm -hmm. we do is we do experiential work to actually bring archives of memories and things and then help them make those changes based on the mind-body codes rather than intellectually doing it. So that is very important. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because not an intellectual process. Otherwise, everybody would do it. All you have to do is tell them, hey, look. Let me be reasonable with you. And reason doesn't work. Why? Because you learn behavior with mind, body, cultural context. And if you talk about it, that's only one part of it. That's just the mind. You didn't get to the whole cluster. cluster. And that's the reason why the change occurs when you do it like like that, when you do it experientially.
0: And as you did say in the beginning, it's just not a quick fix. It's not,
1: it's not, it it takes
0: time. I love how you shifting these mind body states, um, fear is such a big one in our society. I think you call it false humility to humble brilliance. And obviously in the concept of the time, I'd love to go through a few tools that you have, but how do we overcome fear? Well, in simple terms,
1: well, first you have to find out if it's, if it's functional fear or not, mm-hmm. if, if you're afraid, uh, to go to a, uh, a, a dark alley in, in a bad neighborhood, that's functional fear, right? But if you think that wherever you go, you're going to get mugged, that's dysfunctional fear. So you have to find out. Then you have to go back. And we do it sometimes teaching people at a level of uh, not hypnosis, but a, a deeply relaxed uh, state that is, we call it contemplative. So you can go back to the time, how they learned their fear, who taught them fear, fears learned. How did you in learn this life,
0: fear? in this life. In this life, right. Yeah. What did you
1: learn? And you might say, well, I remember that my mother always used to say that men are dangerous or, that people want to hurt you or so you learn that and and you embody it you embody Mm -hmm. okay how did that feel feels okay now good now where did you learn courage in your life and you go back to that archive and you bring how does it feel to be courageous and you you embody that so then what you do is you teach them to live a consciousness of courage and courage doesn't have to do anything with uh, being courageous it has to do with value so the terrain for, and nobody talks about this, a terrain of, of, courage is value. And I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, and that's doing things with fear, by the way, heroes are, are afraid, but they still do it because they value something. So let's say you're working down, you're walking down a pier and, uh, and there's some, possibly some sharks, you don't know, but, some, and, and your, um, and your purse falls into the water and you have $20 there. You're not going to jump. Because $20 is not enough. But if your child or someone you love falls, you don't even think about the sharks. You, you, you jump because you gave value to what you're doing. Mm. But if you don't give value to yourself, then you can't be courageous about yourself. So what we teach is personalizing value. And then that's the terrain of, of uh, courage and courage comes out. We don't change behavior. We create terrains that cultivate the behavior.
0: And... Um, it's almost recognizing that uh, I'm not using your beautiful terminology, but that emotional signature of courage and em- embodying that as a yes. feeling.
1: As a feeling, because you you have to value something. You would die for your country, for a flag or for whatever. Why it's just a piece, it's a rag, it's just a piece of land. But when you value that, then it becomes worthy of you risking. And mm-hmm. risking is, is is courageous. You ask a lot of heroes, Were you afraid when you, oh yeah, I was very afraid, but it had to be done. See, so it's not, fear doesn't stop you from being courageous. What stops you is the lack of valuation that you give to things.
0: It's so true. Um, You also talk about um, commitment in relationships, which is such a big one for all of us and the archetypal wounds of abandonment. How do you work through that with individuals? It's such a, Big thing for many, well, all of us, relationships with lovers, with others, with family members.
1: Very much. And, and what I found was, again, the anthropology of it is <clears throat> looking at cultures. What, what are the things that, that cultures will, I call them archetypal type of wounds because they're all over in all cultures. How do they hurt you? How do they wound you? And as you mentioned you are three, only three, which is good. <laughs> you don't want more than that. Oh
0: God! Okay. They either
1: <laughs> abandon you, they betray you, or they shame you, and each of them has a psychoneurological response. So you can, so let's say you cut, you're in a, you're in a relationship. So what you learn is that whoever shamed you or whatever uh, wound is usually somebody important in your life—a culture editor, a teacher, uh, a father, a mother, a friend, someone that has love. So when you're young and you are um, wounded, you wrap your wound around love. And then love equals shame or love equals abandon, and You speak the language and you look for relationships that you can abandon or that you can be abandoned. And you hear people say, well, I've been married three times and every time I've been betrayed. They speak betrayal fluently, not because they want to, but that's what they learned. So in biocognition, we untangle the wound from love to make it pristine again. And each of them has an antidote. So for abandonment is commitment consciousness that you teach. Uh, For shame is honor consciousness that you teach. And for betrayal, which is the hardest, is loyalty consciousness, but to self, not to others. Because something was taken away from you. So you don't go fix it out there. You fix it within you. And interesting, the one that's been studied the most of the three is shame. As I mentioned uh, shame causes inflammation. And inflammation has been, con- uh, has been correlated with everything from depression to cancer. Mm. Depression is more related to, to inflammation than serotonin. So uh, I have worked with many, many women uh, with fibromyalgia. And I haven't found one that didn't have some kind of a shaming wound from the beginning. They learned inflammation, and they learned fibromyalgia. So, and and the work that we're doing now is that we're beginning to research. I've, clinically, I've been able to show it, but now we're going to research it in the lab of how honor is anti-inflammatory. Clinically, I've seen it improvement in, in fibromyalgia and uh, rheumatoid arthritis and other kind of uh, um, inflammatory illnesses like MS and so forth by by creating an honor consciousness. Because, for example, the question is, if one emotion, one negative emotion, has some psychoneurological reaction, why would the opposite of that emotion not have also a psychoneurological reaction? So the biology doesn't look only at the negative. It looks at the positive, too. It has positive biology and negative biology.
0: It's just so interesting we're talking about this because I did my own work that I had a realization last week about relationships and abandonment <laughs> but um, I mean I just love what you're doing but do you whether it's shame or whatever it might be do you take them back to a time in childhood or when they experience those the love and the abandonment for example and work them through it and change the emotional signature around that
1: yes uh, emotional signature is a good word uh, yes you have to go to the source even if you don't remember that source you have to go to mm-hmm. some time you always have to go, go to your emotional archives. They're there. So you go back, when was the first time that you felt shame? And they're even, ha- they have a temperature. Shame is hot, abandonment is cold, and, and betrayal is hot. So they even have a temperature. Um, so you go back and then you bring it in, you embody it. You're, embodying is very important so it doesn't stay up in your Where do you feel it, um, my chest or my throat? Okay, uh, embody that, experience it, and just allow it to happen. And, and, and pay attention to it and breathe. Don't try to get rid of it, but just breathe. And then it dissipates. But if you leave it there, it'll come back. So you have to have then the antidote. And the antidote for, for commitment is go back to a time in your life when you were committed to something. Not someone's committed to you. You were committed to something that you did. And you did it and you felt really good about yourself. Then when you bring, you bring commitment consciousness in, it, it begins to create an antidote for the shame or for the abandonment. And then you begin to live uh, the commitment consciousness. But in order to create more neuro maps, you have to repeat it. So that means that for the next two weeks, you're going to do commitment consciousness. Mm -hmm. Even the smallest thing, I commit to doing such and such and you do it. I commit to do it and you do it. And that is one of the pillars of self-esteem. Valuation self-esteem goes up when you keep self-caring commitments it goes down when you when you break self-caring commitments and the cultures will always teach you to break commitments to yourself they teach you to be uh, caretakers so i say could we go for a walk now and you say no i'm going to do some meditation come on do it some other time that's okay you can do it oh no come on no i want to meditate but if you say you have a migraine immediate okay i'm sorry we can do it any other time you can so it's set up that way do not let you commit to self or to be um, to be honorable with self, or to admire self. Relationships need to be mutual admiration. You have to admire each other. Because when you admire each other, uh, admiration epigenetically and, and every uh, developmental way is something that's necessary. We were designed to admire laudable good behavior so it can be imitated. This is why you have the bonding oxytocin, peptide, neurotransmitter that actually bonds you. You have it uh, during orgasm, when you're breastfeeding, and when you make a, a connection, not necessarily uh, sexual scene, just a, a friendly smile that creates oxytocin. So it's set up so you can imitate laudable behavior. But if you don't do it in yourself, and you admire other people, then you don't get the benefit. Right. Uh, you're just putting it out. And the other thing that we teach is admiration without envy, extremely important. And we have some techniques to to work because if you admire with envy, there's no oxytocin. The immune system knows the difference. You can't trick mother nature. Feelings and emotions are so
0: significant as you keep talking about. I just want to touch on, you um, mentioned in relationships about the feeling of shame and then you almost flip it somewhat to feeling emotions of commitment. Do you take the person back to that first time that they felt shame and ask them to embrace? After they've experienced the shame, ask them to embrace the feeling of
1: commitment, for example? No, because each, each of them has an antidote for, for shame is honor. Okay. For, for, for abandonment is commitment. So honor, so what you do to go back to a time, archives, mm-hmm. when you did something very honorable that you're proud of, you notice that when you're shame, you're, you go inward like this, and when you're proud, you go out. It, it has a body right. uh, positioning. Uh, and um, so when, when you go back and, okay, when, when was the first time that you did something that's very honorable, even if nobody knew about it, you knew it was the right thing, it was the elegant, appropriate thing to do, and you felt very proud. Bring it back, and then you go ahead and you embody it. Then you act honorably uh, for several weeks in order to, to bring it back but if it comes back I'll give you an example let's say that you have shame and it happens you, you have the shame wound so you carry uh, a lot of shame around mm-hmm. and you know when you're using the wound when you're over responding to, to something you're overreacting you go to, you go to to your job and you have a, a board meeting and you're late and the uh, head of the meeting is a shaming person and he says, well, there you are again. I can always count on you of being late. And you just feel like it's getting a, a tornado going through you. Right. That is a signal that you're over responding because you're bringing your whole history of shame in there. So what do you do? First, you stop, you know, shame, you breathe, you let it, let the signature pass through and ask yourself, what is the honorable thing that I need to do now for myself? You ask yourself and it could be, all right. Uh, yes, I'm late, and I will uh, take care of that later. Let me talk to you about that later. Thank you. And you said, that's honorable. But once you want to clean up a wound, you have to be assertive so you don't continue to be abused. So later, in an honorable way, you talk to your boss, and, and, and sometimes you could lose your job, but, you know, it's better to lose your job than your health. Uh, and you say, look, I'm, I'm very sorry that I'm late, and I'll make up the, the work, but please don't do this in front of me, uh, in front of other people again, because we're both professionals. Respect me as I respect you. That's honorable. So you have to be assertive to clean up a wound. Otherwise, they keep wounding you. I just I just love the way
0: you're explaining this. It, sa- it sounds so simple, but it is complex. Um, it is. <laughs> a lot of us, instead of, um, well, maybe I'm talking about myself, but instead of um, talking about it, distance themselves from that person.
1: Yes. Is that? Not going to work as well. Well, it depends. If, if it's someone that you can distance yourself from, it's great because you don't need them. I mean, who would you? Why would you want somebody who wants to hurt you? Mm-hmm. But if it's someone that you have to deal with, then you have to do these things because if you don't, they'll continue to do it. And in many cases, you can resolve it because you have to do it honorably. You don't go angry to the person, and tell them you don't ever do this. It's, it's an honorable thing. So what you're trying to do is you bring out the best in them and, and, and say, uh, you could say. If you were upset, I understand, uh, but uh, I, I really uh, don't, uh, don't appreciate uh, being treated this way, although I was wrong, and I will definitely correct me being late. See, it's, it's a way of valuing yourself so somebody else can value.
0: So in a way, being assertive is part of the healing process s- yes. somewhat. So yes. it yeah. maybe is an essential part instead of hiding from it.
1: Yes. Uh, uh, assertiveness is really another one of the causes of health benign boundaries and another example from centenarians was uh, centenarians I, I i couldn't teach them anything they taught me uh, all of I the theory that I did. so um but i asked one um he was about 101 i believe and um he's probably 110 by now because <laughs> i mean they're around for what long an time.
0: incredible study I have to say congratulations yes. again it's remarkable thank you
1: so i said uh they're, they're very willing to help but they have benign boundaries I said, could I interview you Saturday? He said, sure, sure. Um, what time? And I said, 9 o'clock. He said, no, at 9 o'clock, I have tango lessons. <laughs> right. You see? He didn't say, oh, I'll drop my tango lessons so I could talk to you. Yeah. No, they, they, they have that healthy narcissism to value themselves. And then he said, how about 2 o'clock? 2 o'clock's great. So he had his tango, and he had the interview.
0: Um- Obviously, you've touched on this, but the role of the ego, you talk about that as a big one in particularly in relationships. Do you mind just discussing the role of the ego?
1: Yes. Um, The way to look at an ego, again, um, developmentally and and anthropologically, the ego, you don't want to kill the ego, like some people say. The ego is that mask that you have to put on in order to deal with the world. You can't tell people everything you think, You can't act the way you act at home in public, so you have to have some constraints, some social constraints, and you have to have some um, diplomacy, and you have to have all of that. But when the ego gets to a level where it's no longer serving you, you're serving the ego, then that becomes a problem in relationships, because then you begin to um, treat the person as if you're better than they are. Mm -hmm. You begin to... uh, to look for ways to, to be admired without admiring back. Uh, and you get very conceited about everything that you do. Conceit is really not, not the admiration that I'm talking about. Conceit is, is actually based on low self-esteem. People that are narcissistic and conceited, they have, they have a, 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 a self-esteem disorder and they compensate for that. And you think about it and say, no, this person can't have any low self-esteem. Look at the way they act. It's a compensation for their lack of self-esteem. So it's really a mask that you know it has to be a mask and when to use it and when not to use it. It's always in the service of the higher self, not the other way around. I need it here, but I don't need it here. Here I can be completely open and safe. And that's what relationships are about, what I call the the covenant of safety. You create safety so both of you could be open with each other and both of you can bring wounds if you have them and work them out. So if you're in a relationship and you have a, a shaming wound, and your partner has a, an abandonment wound, you, you talk about it and you realize that that if you don't deal with it, you use each other and you manipulate without knowing. It. So abandonment and shame, whatever they require? A relationship of commitment and honor to interrelate. That's the language that you create. And it begins to heal the wounds on, the, on their own. And if you make a mistake, you stop, no, look, uh, this is not honorable. This, this is what I need from you right now. So it takes working and cultivating the relationship. But not everyone is willing to do that. There's some people that come into relationships to be served, and they don't care. That's it. Mm. Or to use you, or not have to invest. So relationships are complicated because they require two people that want the same thing, which is to grow together.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just so simple, but I mean, it's obviously a bit of work, but embodying those signatures is...
1: The way forward. That's right. And you have the tools. And and where did I I study that? Basically, good science, you have to go to what works and then develop theories about it. You don't want to go to uh, uh, talking about longevity with people who live 40 years. You go to what works, which is the centenarians. I did the same thing with relationships. I studied relationships that were together for 30, 40, 50 years. And I looked at factors that they had. And one of the factors that they have is they're still excited about each other. They still laugh about each other's jokes. They still have dreams that they want to fulfill with each other. It doesn't end with time. Another uh, myth that we debunk is that you're told, even uh, gerontologists will say, you as you grow older, you're going to feel like time is passing faster. So that's what it is. That's growing older. That's bad science. What's happening is that depending on how much curiosity you have, it'll affect time. If you don't have a lot of curiosity, it constricts time and you think that things are moving very fast. If you have curiosity like centenarians, they think they have all the time in the world. So it's it's a developmental factor rather than something that, that is genetically sentenced. It's not like that at all. So these people are excited about their lives and they have plenty of time for anything. At 105, 105 I asked this the centenarian, so what do you think of your garden? He had a, a garden. He said, oh, it's really good, but wait till you see it in a couple of years. <laughs>
0: That's wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I love that. So just relationships is such a big one, but people often talk about the honeymoon stage in the relationships, and then it kind of filters out and they don't have the same respect and love anymore that they did. What, how would you describe that?
1: Because that's exactly the same thing. They already know that this honeymoon effect, and after a while, they can, That that's the, the part of... Uh, you put out your best. And then later, finally, your ego comes out, which is selfish and conceited and insensitive. So what you want to do is the honeymoon never ends. You stay in honeymoon. Like like Steve Jobs would say, uh, our company will, will, will always be on startup. We're hungrier than anybody else. We're always learning about relationships. You stay in the honeymoon effect. And that's what uh, my colleague, uh, Bruce Lipton, talks about the honeymoon effect that you, uh, you, you 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 explore. But the whole idea is that, You have to explore your dreams with each other. Even if you don't fulfill them, you have to explore them. You have to respect each other. You have to give each other time to express each other. Uh, You have to keep a sense of excitement about each other. Not only physically, but intellectually in every other way. And you have to be able to be open enough to talk about things when they're getting boring. What I call the the, 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 uh, curiosity plateau, the novelty plateau. Let's say, I'll give you an example. You, you uh, Your partner, uh, you work at home and your partner works out and it's raining and snow it's snowing and sleeting and all that. And you say to your partner, oh, you can go out and dance in the rain and the snow. And you laugh. Oh, that's funny. But then every time your partner goes out, oh, you're going to dance in the rain. They'll say, why don't you go out and dance in the rain for a while? See, it, 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 it's a novelty plateau. You can't replay it. Because it's not contextually relevant. It's not funny anymore. So I have to come up with something new. And the reruns are the thing that make people feel that the honeymoon effect is over.
0: So keep finding new creative ways to explore
1: the relationship. And and find out what you did when you were together first and what you're doing now. You have to have exciting rituals, for example. Rituals are another cause of health. Uh, a ritual of we go out to dinner every Sunday night or we work we eat at home with candlelights and look at people at restaurants couples that have been together for a long time and they're not really that happy and you see they don't even talk to each other
0: I know I see that and I think my gosh yeah or they with
1: their their laptops or whatever and you see people that they talk to each other excited they laugh you know you're in trouble when your partner doesn't laugh at at your uh, jokes anymore that's the beginning of the end okay (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks for explaining that. And, and I just want to touch on what is, what is your guardians of the heart or is this all incorporated in what you've been talking about?
1: Yes. Guardians of the heart is the model that I use for relationships, which mm-hmm. is that you give literally and, and, and well, not literally, but symbolically you give your heart to your partner to take care of it for you. And your partner gives you his or her heart. Mm-hmm. for you to take care of it. So it's a major responsibility here. And you take care of it by healing each other's wounds and your own wounds. And then you create what I call a covenant of safety where you can actually talk about things before they become a problem. Let's say, let's look at something difficult here. Let's say a partner says to uh, his or her partner, uh, you know, I'm really, ha- I'm I'm really a little concerned here. I've been looking around and I've, I've been feeling some attraction to other people. What can we do about that instead of not talking about it and suppressing it and then doing it later? Right. Betraying. So that's a, that's a precursor to betrayal. So you talk about it. Well, what is what's going on? Well, uh, we used to be very excited about each other. We used to do things together that were exciting. And, and by the way, good sex comes from good relationships, because after a while, good sex becomes really monotonous. Uh, so then it's, it's begin- not
0: about the sex at the end of the day, it's about, that's the, right. friendship. It's not about
1: the sex. And, uh, and you might say, well, look, I'll tell you, you don't shave anymore and, and you've gained some weight and you don't take care of yourself anymore. So let's commit both of us to take care of our bodies, to, to, to look good as if we wanted to look good for, for our first date. And you also have to take the ego out because you say you've gained some weight and your ego says, oh, how dare you? You, know? right. <laughs> so you have to get the ego yeah. out of the way. My mother was Spanish-French and she would tell you as things were, because she was very existential without knowing it. She would say to somebody, "Oh, you gained some weight." I said, "Why would you say that?" Because she did. She knows she gained some weight, so I'm saying it as an statement. So then I was trying to use psychology with her, and it wouldn't work because I say, "Okay, what if somebody said that you're ugly? Would you like that?" She said, "I've always been ugly. I don't have any problems with that."
0: <laughs> right. Okay.
1: So, so there was no was, ego there. That's right. No ego, and she almost was a centenary. She lived to ninety-seven. Wow. So uh,
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I've just got another question, and this is probably a big topic, but I'm interested from your perspective. Why are we attracted to certain people and not others?
1: Because we're, we learn the, the intimate language of love from, from our parents and from people that, that we knew early. And if it just happens that let's say you learn the, 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 the abuse language of love, which is mm-hmm. uh, shaming or, or abandonment, emotional, physical abuse, you learn that. So without you knowing it, even though you don't want it, you speak abuse. And you find someone that has to abuse you a little bit emotionally or intellectually or whatever for you to feel at home. You find somebody that, that, that doesn't abuse you and treats you well, and you don't know what to do. So I had a patient. This is an extreme. But she came from a very abusive uh, family. The father abused her. And, of course, she found a husband that abused her. So we were working on it one day she comes in and she said, I'm, I'm a little concerned. I think my husband might be having a, an affair. I said, why is it? He hasn't beat me up in two months, Gosh. you see the pathology yeah. uh, because that's that's the intimate language that we learn. So if you fi- if you want somebody with all the qualities that, that, that you're looking for, make sure that you're not um, in any way bringing something in that needs to be worked out first. So for example, if you want someone to treat you well, look back and see how you were treated to see if, if you're looking for how you were treated badly or how you can break away from that and create your own uh, individuation and then get out of the tribe, get out of a, a pale and begin to demand what you didn't have when you were a little girl. But it takes work with each other. And, and it's exciting. If you we, if we learn to do it, it's very exciting. I work with couples and they find it very exciting to, to learn these things because they grow.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love, I love that explanation. You also talk about why, why it's so difficult to achieve lasting change. Why is that?
1: Um, well, because we, we, we learn, um, there, there are three levels of learning, the way that I look at it, developmentally and so forth. But babies or children or infants learn, they're disciples of pain. They learn by pain. They touch something as hot, they don't touch it anymore. They uh, they do something bad and they get spanked or they're told. Uh, and, 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 and So they, it's pain. Pain. Then you go to the next level and the next level is skeptic of joy. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I feel good, but that, that's because happiness. Happiness is not sustainable. Uh, so that's what you do, skeptic of joy. Some people are stuck in the first, which is, I can only learn through pain. Others are stuck in the in the uh, the ones that doubt and skeptics. Yeah, this is good, but when is, when is this gonna end? And then the masters of abundance, which is what I teach, is that there's joy in everything that you do, not in good or bad, but extracting the wisdom of whatever's happening. So a lot of people, and it's all in the language, say people, you say, how are you doing? So far, I'm doing okay. So far, I'm doing okay. It's like it's not going to last. So the change that's sustainable is when happiness, for example, happiness is not something that you can control. Happiness is fleeting. And you don't want happiness. You want joy. You buy a new car, you're happy. You wreck it, you're not happy. But when you extract the joy of things, of what you're doing, even if it's something bad, you extract the joy. Not Pollyanna, how wonderful, but what is the, what is the meaning of this? Mm-hmm. Meaning and joy come together. And joy and a sense of... Uh, of belongingness come together. So you forget, for example, when I work with executives, tell them, look, forget about getting your employees to be happy, forget it. You could have, a, it doesn't translate to production or wealth or health, because you could have a very angry, unhappy person who's very, very effective, or you could have someone who's very happy and very lazy. So happiness is not a predictor, meaning is the predictor. You don't give them happiness, you give them meaning. So with meaning, they can find joy. So it terrains rather than behavior change.
0: And this is also what relates to your ceiling of abundance in essence. Yes,
1: yes because you could be abundant. I remember I, I, I was living in Miami and a friend of mine uh, told me that we were gonna visit this man who was a, a baritone uh, singer from, from Cuba and he left Cuba because of the revolution all that. And he was living in a very poor neighborhood, very, very modest neighborhood. And we went to his place, like a little studio, and you would walk in and it felt like a mansion. He had a little candle and he had a, 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 a very old person rug, a piece. He would offer us tea. We felt abundant there. And the guy is living in a terrible neighborhood. Yeah. But you could go to a mansion and feel tremendous deprivation.
0: And cold. So it's
1: what you take with you.
0: Yes. Yeah. I love that. This conversation has been so insightful. I've asked all the questions. Is there something you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you, Dr. Martinez?
1: Well, I think you covered pretty much very well. <laughs> we covered uh, I think a what, lot. what I would like to do is to see that, to look at that you come from cultures and some cultures, uh, for example, cultures that have had a lot of negative things happen in their lives, for example, Poland and Japan and places like that that have had the Nazis and the Communists, they have what's called uh, avoidance of uncertainty. Other cultures like the United States and Australia and and UK have uh, a more willingness to risk uncertainty. So if you have a culture that tells you, and, and, and it's in the fishbowl, you don't even have to be told, don't risk, then you're gonna live a life that is gonna be quite mediocre. I don't mean risking and doing cocaine or anything, but but intelligent risk. So that's important in growth. You have to grow. Uh, It's not like Freud said that that developmentally, you stop after you you reach adulthood, you keep developing until the moment you die. So find out what your culture says, what what you learned and how you can individuate, how you can become an individual, even if your culture doesn't accept it. But then since we're social beings, you have to find a subcultural wellness that supports your new way of being. If you say, I'm so glad that I'm, uh, I'm I'm 40 and I'm going back to school and oh, that's wonderful. As opposed to, well, you got to start saving for your retirement, see, mm-hmm. a damper. It, it, the cultural portals that they put you into. Never allow yourself to go into middle age. Middle age doesn't exist. You find <laughs> out when you die. <laughs> what's middle age? you find out when you die. Right. When you ask centenarians, what's middle age? I don't know. Uh, And what do your doctors tell you when you talk about those things? I don't know, because they're all dead. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So so they live agelessly.
0: That's wonderful. It's been such a delight to have you on the show, Dr. Martinez. Thank you. Where's the best best place for people to contact you?
1: I think the website is is a good start, uh, biocognitive.com, biocognitive.com, but also... I have a tremendous amount of information on my YouTube uh, channel, Dr. Mario Martinez YouTube, and I have over 120 free videos there about my work and techniques and and topics. But make sure make sure that if if you go, that you subscribe so you can have access to it and 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 the latest information that we put up.
0: Fantastic. And, and all the, your links will also be in the show notes. Dr. Martinez, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. I, I can't wait to re-listen to this interview. It's been so insightful.
1: My pleasure. And thank you for the work you do. Thank you
0: so much. Bye-bye. Enjoy. Goodbye. Bye. That's very nice. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, and spread the passion as always every day, may you be more and more passionate.